Um, this morning, you're going to be taking a break from the Gospel of Mark, and I am um, going to be teaching from Psalm 126. I think the words will be on the screen. Uh, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to pull it out or a phone. I'm going to read from Psalm 126, verses 1 through 6. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us, and we were joyful. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like water courses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. So, our Father, we ask that you would restore laughter, joy, and that you'd also show us what to do with our mourning and our tears. And as you, um, as we spend this time just sort of understanding what these words mean for us today as what they meant for uh, those who were on a journey thousands of years ago, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for prayer and to encounter you, Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. This psalm has tremendous amounts of meaning for me. Um, it was about 2004, and I had a seminary professor who was giving his final talk before our graduation. And he used this psalm as his text. And I clearly remember him prefacing his words by saying, this is the church planter's text. You will sow in tears, but you will reap with joy. You will go along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, but you will come back with shouts of joy, carrying your sheaves. So, about 16 years later, in June of 2020, when I preached my last sermon for the church that we planted and pastored and loved in the city of Boston, I stood before a camera to say goodbye because we were... Uh, socially distanced or isolated. Basically, we were all dying. And uh, as I preached this last sermon, I told stories of all of the great things that we had experienced for the eight years in a very tough city. You see, before we moved, people had visions and pictures and prophetic words for us of all of the joy that my family and those who moved with us would experience in that city. And you know what it came, to, it came to be? In a very difficult city, not known for being joyful, but mo mostly known for being cynical, we experienced a ton of rain of joy. And we told stories in that last moment, that last talk that I gave with them, of all of the things that we experienced God do, just like these people are explaining. We experienced a lot of joy. And we experienced a lot of pain experienced really severe bouts of depression, experienced some real tears, some real weeping, 
And it's easy to assume that God is with you during times of perceived blessing when the harvest is happening and when everybody's mouths are filled with laughter. It's easy to assume that God is with me, but it's times of drought, times of tears, times of weeping where we wonder, where is God, right? That's why this psalm is so important for us. It's not just the church planter's psalm. It's the church's psalm. It's a psalm for this church. As they've had, as you all met for a night of worship this past Wednesday night, somebody had communicated that this was a season, a year of unique hardship. And when it's a year of unique hardship, it's hard to dream when you're in survival, isn't it? It's a psalm for the church. It's a psalm for people who have experienced times of restoration and laughter and harvest, but also times of weeping and desperation and drought. It's a psalm for anyone who's facing transition and uncertainty. And as I know you as a community, that's this community here. And you're asking the questions again, can we dream again? Will God restore us This song is written as a prayer for people on a journey of faith who face a paradox of emotions. They're both surprised by joy and acquainted with grief. And it's a psalm that gives us an emotional map for the life of faith. It gives us a few things. Verses 1 through 3, it gives us a reason to hope. Verses 4 through 6, it gives us a reality of hurt. And then 1 through 6, the whole thing gives us a way to heal. When we get to the way to heal, we're actually going to just focus on prayer and do that together. But first, we'll start with a reason to hope. The psalmist starts by recalling a moment of restoration in their history, some event in the history of Israel where God brought out hope out of tremendous suffering. Verses 1 through 2, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. And our tongues with shouts of joy, songs of joy. There's few things that cause us to spontaneously sing songs of joy. A jet ski is one of those things that does that for me. But spiritually speaking, there's these rare times where we spontaneously laugh uncontrollably and we say, oh my gosh, can you believe what God has done? Can you think back to a moment when you experienced that? It's probably not all that common. I can think of a moment or two, but it's not very common when we, you say, we were like those who, it was like, it, Biggie Small says, it was all a dream. I just watched a documentary with my family on 9-11. It's a documentary that shows the atrocities that the people of Afghanistan have experienced under Taliban rule, women beaten in public, people brutally mutilated. And can you imagine what it would be like if one morning they woke up and something happened that sent the Taliban and those who are bringing incredible atrocity to their land, they wake up and they're all gone and now they're free? They would say, we were like those who dreamed. It was all a dream, man, and we, our, la- our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. 
Imagine the elation. Well, that's essentially the emotion that the psalmist is recalling in these first few verses because God has restored Israel's fortune in a way that perhaps could never have matched their wildest dreams. The setting is unclear. Some say it's describing their return from Babylon after a 70-year captivity. Others mention that this is maybe one of the times that God brought some kind of deliverance, the many times that God delivers his people throughout Scripture. The truth is we really don't know what the setting is, and maybe it doesn't matter all that much. And maybe it's more helpful for us to not know the setting because then we can relate. Then we can be like, oh, man, I remember times when God brought uh, a freedom into my life. He, he restored me. He brought deliverance to me. In those times, Israel was taken captive, usually for the rebellion, but the compassion of God turns into a promise. You see, God promised restoration for his people, and that gave them reason to hope. In Jeremiah 29, God had foreshadowed their captivity and tells them what will happen after 70 years. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things that I've promised. I'll bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Their plans are for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days, you will pray and I will listen if you look for me wholeheartedly, you'll find me. I'll be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you. And notice this, I will bring you home again to your land. There was a moment that brought me this kind of elation, tears of joy, actually, about 2016. God had given me this very verse, and I came home after a retreat. I'll tell you that maybe if we have time in a moment. and shared it with my wife, and she had that same verse. It actually led us to return back to California after years of living in Boston. You see, God promised restoration for his people, and that's what gave them hope. And for you and I, for those who are uh, have sworn allegiance to Jesus. You've become an apprentice of the way of Jesus. You, what brings you hope, the promise of hope is future restoration. The resurrection of Jesus brings us ultimate hope. C.S. Lewis described it, his conversion as being surprised by joy. And he says that joy is the serious business of heaven. In fact, when he wrote Chronicles of Narnia, at the very end, when all of the main characters are realizing that they're now dead, it says that it, it felt as though they woke up from a dream. And this was the real life. The real life had begun. Everything else was just leading up to, it was everything else, all of their life was just the title page, but now the real story had begun. The resurrection of Jesus gives us ultimate hope. Jesus promised that he would return and not just return for his people, not just return his people to their land, but raise them up and restore all things that are broken in this world. All forms of injustice. Every tear wiped away. In fact, before Jesus goes to the cross, he tells his disciples that he's going to return for them or at least give them a home with him. And he says, look, it, if it wasn't so, I would tell you, I'm straight up, I'm on the level. I'll tell you the truth, but I'm coming again for you. 
And where I am, I want you to be there also. And you can attest to experiencing God's joy in this community. You can attest, many of you who have followed Jesus for any period of time, to times where God has brought deliverance to you. It says in verse 3, the Lord had done great things for us, and we were joyful. But here's the tension. Here's the rub. The life of a believer is one filled with joy because we follow one that Hebrews says he was anointed with the oil of joy and gladness more than all of his companions because he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding where he produced what really great wine out of water. His first miracle was at a party where he's keeping it going. He's anointed with the oil of joy. But the tension is we also follow one who is acquainted with grief. That leads us to verses 4 through 6, the reality of hurt. We know life all isn't all laughter and songs of rejoicing. We know life's songs are not always sung in major key. They're sung in minor keys as well. It says in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, Lord, like water courses in the Negev. We also experience in times of pain and weeping. In Israel, Negev is an extremely dry and arid ravine area. What's interesting is that you actually find green shrubbery growing in this area because if there's a sudden rain, it creates a flash flood where this water holds up in this ravine, causing certain things to grow in that environment. And the psalm is saying, even though we've come back to our land, even though we've experienced times of deliverance and freedom, even restoration, we know you've done great things, but we're dry again, Lord. We feel our souls shriveling up again. We need you again. We're parched. Restore us. Water us. Help us grow. How many of you can relate to times when God has spoken a promise to you? Or when you experience incredible rejoicing? Or maybe you experience some kind of freedom. Maybe a freedom from addiction or a freedom from some oppression. And you were flooded with blessing. Only to soon be back in the desert. Again, to soon feel dry again. Your restoration song will include weeping and rejoicing. You know, the moment that we experience certain promises, we experience it to be so good, and then all of a sudden those promises are mixed with times of difficulty as well. It causes us deep dependence on God. It said, verse 5, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. See, as a church community, you've all prayed for times for God to lead you. That's how you ended up in this building. Had nowhere to meet as you leave a school. And then all of a sudden, you're praying and God provides a parking lot to meet outdoors during a pandemic. And then you experience, wow, this is awkward. Like we come and it's just something feels off or different or not the same. And then you say again, restore us, Lord. We're sowing in tears. We want to reap joy again. We need your times of water. And see, in the end, joy will always be the final note in the song. There will always be a pilot flame of joy that will never be put out. But that doesn't mean that right now, as a follower of Jesus, it's joy all the time. 
at least not until the final ultimate restoration of all things. You see, rejoicing and weeping will be part of your restoration story. That gives us, number three, a way of healing. We have a reason for hoping. There's a reality for hurting. But what's the way of healing? You know that Hebrews passage that I mentioned, that Jesus is anointed with the oil of joy. Well, it also says that he was made perfect through his sufferings. This is Psalm 1 of 13 that's known as the Songs of Ascent. They were psalms or songs sung by the Jewish people on their way to Jerusalem three times a year for festivals or holy feasts. Several hundred years later, around 33 AD, a carpenter who claims to be Messiah would also be on his way to a holy feast called Passover and would be singing the same psalm on the night of his arrest, on the very night that he would be feasting with his friends. And it's true that Jesus' first miracle, his public launch, so to speak, was at a party where he turned water into wine, and yet he also felt the sorrows of those around him to the core. He wept over the loss of his friends. He wept at the widows who were losing loved ones. He wept and he grieved as others around him were sick. He wept as he saw his friends drop one by one to certain forms of tendencies in their life. When you follow Jesus, you'll be surprised by joy. And at the same time, the more your heart is open to Jesus, the more you weep. When you open your heart to God, you realize the life of faith is a life of greater weeping and greater rejoicing. It makes you both happier and sadder. See, there's a passage in Ezekiel where God foretells what will happen when the Messiah pours his spirit out into the hearts of his followers. It says, I will remove from them a heart of stone and give you a new heart of flesh. You see, to be a follower of Jesus is to learn that once your heart is open to Jesus, you begin to feel differently. You begin to cry. And you begin to laugh. Why was Jesus always seemed to be weeping? Because he was perfect. Because he was more loving than me. Because he was more sensitive to the Father's love for others and for himself. Because he had higher aspirations for people than we often do. And the more perfect you get, the more fully human you become, the more you're going to weep. You see, when you become a follower of Jesus, you actually not, might not become more good. But when you become and you experience a shift in why you want to be more good, it begins to change you. After your relationship with God changes, it's no longer only that God is king and I'm the subject or I'm the employee and God is my boss. It's I'm the child and God is my father and through my greater brother Jesus at infinite cost, he's brought me into his family and he loves me with an everlasting love and he sent his son who went to an incredible cost to make me holy. And my heart is opened to love. So when I lie, I haven't just broken a rule, I've broken a heart. And that's what makes me weep. 
I've broken the heart. You're not just going to kick yourself. You're actually going to weep and you're going to repent and you're going to mourn. And then the thing we learn is that sorrow produces repentance and that produces greater joy and that produces greater relationship. Or when you look at people around you before you're a Christ follower, you had no idea of what they could be. You had no idea what joy they could experience. But now you've experienced it. You never look at people the same way again. You know what they could be. You know how they're hurting, and you want to see them released and experience a similar kind of release. So like Jesus, you'll be weeping over them in ways that you weren't before. When you or a loved one experiences pain or loss, you shed tears like Jesus, because Jesus said to his disciples, in this, pain, in this life you'll have pain. But be of good courage, I've overcome the world. This is not the way God intended it for you. So the question here is, what is the way of healing? The way of healing is that we bring our reason for hope and the reality of our hurt to the great high priest. In Hebrews, Jesus is thirdly also known as the great high priest. And this is what it says of him. So then, since we have a great high priest the mediator between God and man who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did with not, with, not with sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive mercy and find grace to help us when we most need it. That's what we're going to do right now. We're going to come to this. I love that phrase, the throne of grace. It reminds us two things. One, Jesus has all authority. And I'm not on the throne. But number two, the kind of throne he had, he has a gracious throne where he says, I want to give to you what you don't actually always deserve. I want to free you and deliver you. So I'm going to, invite Joseph and Gabrielle up right now. We're going to meet with Jesus at this throne of grace. And we're going to pray through these, these moments of psalm in an intentional way. I opened this psalm by saying that it meant a lot to me in the past, but it recently has as well. I believe that there's something here for all of us. Um, I'm not going to go into the stories of how I believe that this is how God has spoken to me in the past couple of weeks. But I believe that there's something here for us. And that maybe some of you come in and you've been rejoicing. Well, we rejoice with you, as Paul says. We want to laugh with you. And maybe some of you come in and, man, you feel like you feel angry. But beneath that anger is real sadness. You feel like, I need some weeping. We also weep with you. We're on this journey together. And the great thing is that <laughs> we have an emotionally aware Savior who invites us into his presence to do both, re rejoice and weep. So if you feel comfortable, I invite you to just close your eyes for a few moments. The first few verses of this psalm starts, or it's really a song, it starts with the people singing and reflecting on how God has been good to them in the past. They rehearse their story. 
That's what we're going to do right now. We're going to reframe our story. Listen to Eugene Peterson's, one of my heroes of faith, as he talks about this psalm. He says, and it is that past that anchors us solidly enough to know what to expect of God in the future. Hope isn't a wishing for a better tomorrow. It isn't a nostalgic longing for the return of, quote, the good old days. But if we understand God's habits, God's heart, as shown in years gone by, then we know what to look for, what to ask for, what realistically will come to be. So let's start small as you reframe your story. I want to invite you to look back over the last 24 hours of your life. I want you to find one small moment of grace, one small moment that brought joy to you. I want you to go back to that moment. Maybe it was a cup of coffee with a friend or hearing the laughter of a child or going for a walk outside or seeing the sunrise or sunset, whatever the small moment of joy was. I just want you to go back to it. What were you feeling? What did you see? What did you hear? And just give thanks to God for that moment.